Well, we come this morning to the final sermon in the book of 1 Samuel. Our text is 1 Samuel 28. 1 Samuel 28, the Old Testament reading, is a tragic text and a sobering text. For in this text, Saul's deterioration is final. His rejection is complete. We'll make three points. They should be available on the inserts that were sent out. Divination, desolation, and dinner. Divination, desolation, and dinner. So this is 1 Samuel 28. First, then, divination. We get at the opening of the text an obituary notice for Samuel. For the fact that Samuel is dead will become quite important later in the text. Saul, we are told, had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. These are necromancers, uh, people who commune with or who conjure up the spirits of the dead. And this is a form of witchcraft. Its essence is a kind of prying into secrets, a desire for forbidden knowledge, especially of the future. Knowledge which God himself has not been pleased to reveal. Its root is a failure to believe or to be content with the fullness of God's revelation in Holy Scripture. It reminds one of Chesterton's quip that when people stop believing in God, it is not that they believe in nothing. It is rather that they will believe in anything. They will consult tarot cards and horoscopes and Ouija boards and conduct seances. Rejecting the Lord of the stars, they will worship the stars or consult the stars. Or perhaps other more approved, rational, modern superstitions. The rejection or departure of the Spirit of God does not leave the house swept and clean as we spoke of in the gospel lesson. It often leaves it repopulated and full of foul and unclean and demonic spirits. And yet, divination, which is just another word for this practice, divination, witchcraft, sorcery, it's expressly forbidden in Israel by the Torah, in both the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy. And Saul, who knows the law, had, to his credit, expelled the practitioners from the land. Which, of course, shows us that there was a time earlier in his reign when Saul had some basic moral clarity. Now, the text is said, if you look in verse 4, at the time of another impending Philistine invasion. David is now himself in the Philistine camp and has apparently, for all that Saul knows, gone over to the king of Gath. And Saul's aware of this as the war gathers on the horizon. He sees the Philistine army and he's afraid. The text says, terror fills his heart. It's a relevant text for our time, I think. The spirit of the Lord, the perfect love of God, for the spirit is the love of God poured out. That love casts out fear. But that spirit had departed from Saul. And so he's left a terrified, desperate man. But we've noticed this before with Saul. He also has a sort of um, pious twitch, a kind of reflex 
religiosity, which remains with him to the end. So what does he do? He inquires of the Lord. But the Lord did not answer. There is nothing so frightful in the universe as the silence of God. It is eerie and full of dread here. And Saul tries or he hopes for communication with God by every possible legitimate means, dreams, Urim, which are the the stones on the priest's breastplate, or prophets, the text tells us. But the Lord didn't answer. Silence. It's not surprising. Saul has rejected the prophet Samuel. He has killed the priests at Nob, and now he wants a prophet or a priest to tell him what God's will is. But the Lord does not answer him by any means. And at least outwardly here, his desperation is directed lawfully. He's trying to use legitimate means. And it's directed toward God, toward the right place. But now we will get a view of what misdirected desperation looks like. That will take up the rest of the text. And while it's easy to see the folly in what Saul's about to do here, we should understand the desperation that drives it. Right? It is a human desperation, and it's all around us. Right? People long for the presence of a lost loved one. They want some word of divine reassurance, some sign from the universe or beyond it. It's akin to the desperation of someone with a terminal disease or someone in the depths of grief. Desperate people will turn to irrational things, quackery even, in hope against hope. So Saul tells his staff, find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. And strangely, his staff knows immediately where one is, even though they're supposed to be banished from the land. They say to him, there's one in Endor. Now, it's interesting, Endor is north of where Saul is, and it's on the other side of the Philistine army line. So he violates here his own prohibition against mediums and spiritists. He violates his own badly misshapen conscience, and he disguises himself, puts on other clothes, the text says. He's willing, think of this, he is willing to take on the danger of navigating around the Philistine military line. And of course, if he succeeds in that, he doesn't want the medium to recognize him, so hiding his identity, putting on these clothes, makes sense. But more importantly, the narrator is saying, this is Saul divesting himself of his royal garb. Symbolically, he strips himself of his kingship. Saul is not only desperate, he's in despair. He's defeated. He's a morally exhausted man. So at night, of course you do this at night, he and two other men go to the woman. And looking just like a commoner with his clothes, he says to her, consult the spirit for me and bring up the one whom I name. And ironically, in what is a bit of, I think, dark comedy, she says, 
surely you know what Saul has done. He cut off all the mediums from the land. Why why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? She senses that this is entrapment. Maybe this is an informant working for Saul. An agent from the necromancy enforcement agency. So she's hesitant. So put this under the heading of awful things you can't make up. Here's what Saul does. He swears an oath in the name of the Lord that she will not be punished for this. This is what it has come to. The absurdity of swearing an oath in the name of the Lord while you are negotiating with a conjurer of spirits to violate the Lord's word. It's beautifully captured in the Midrash, which is an ancient Jewish commentation, commentary on the Bible. And the Midrash there comments on this particular incident. And it says this, Whom did Saul resemble at this moment? A woman who is caught with her lover and swears by the life of her husband. This is the position Saul is in, as he swears by the name of the Lord. And oddly, and there are numerous odd things in this narrative, instead of asking this strange man who's appeared in her house with two other men, who are you to make such an oath and to guarantee my safety? You would think that'd be a rational question. She's just oddly compliant and says, okay, if you say so, whom shall I bring up for you? And Saul says, bring up Samuel. Again, he didn't heed Samuel in life. So coupled with the desperation, there's probably some regret, maybe even some nostalgia for Samuel. People often want to talk to people that they didn't listen to while they were alive. Now we're told nothing about the process, what the woman says, what devices she uses. Just that when the woman saw Samuel, she cries out in a loud voice. She's terrified. Maybe she knows that she doesn't really wake the dead. Like maybe she knows her game is a fraud. And she's shocked that something happened this time. Maybe all that she's used to doing is sort of listening and kind of interpreting a message from the dead one, conjuring some sort of wispy, shadowy presence of the dead without seeing any vivid image. In any event, something else happens here, and she is shocked. And immediately she turns to Saul and says, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Now, it's not clear why she recognizes him. Maybe she knows Samuel would only come back for the king. In any event, one way or the other, this medium now knows who her client is. He's the king of Israel. Now, whatever we want to say about the phenomenon here, what's actually happening, we do need to say at least this much. Divination is evil, but it is not vain. Meaning something happens even when nothing happens. For one is playing with fire, with the realm of the dead and the demonic, because even attempting it is a renunciation of the God of the living. Whatever happens here, and the text thinks Samuel is really summoned from the dead, really appears. 
Whatever happens, God nonetheless uses this illegitimate practice to have his word spoken. Strange stuff, indeed. So, next in the narrative, Saul comforts the fearful woman. He says, don't be afraid. What do you see? He obviously can't see what's going on. And that's a kind of metaphor for the, for the whole reign of Saul. He never seems to see or to know what he needs to see or know. And the same here at the end. The woman says, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like, Saul says? And she says, an old man wearing a robe. Robes have marked Samuel's ministry from the time that his mother Hannah would make him one every year when he was a little boy training for the priesthood. Back when Samuel pronounced this devastating judgment on Saul for failing to destroy the Amalekites, Saul grabbed Samuel's robe and tore it. And Samuel declared that the kingdom would be torn from him and given to another. So the robe let Saul know right away, this is Samuel. This is Samuel. And now, way too late, out of some sentimental reverence for Samuel, Saul bows down with his face to the ground. And there's another irony here. Samuel last saw Saul stretched out on the ground naked in a frenzy before him. And now he sees him stretched out on the ground in disguise, fully clothed in the house of a witch. Samuel must be thinking, same Saul, just a different day. So that's divination. The second point here is desolation, by which I mean the the desolating word and encounter that Samuel now has with Saul. Samuel here, aroused, is in character from the start. He's irritated with Saul. He speaks directly to Saul, bypassing the medium, and says, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul's clearly, you know, he's, he's a bit shell-shocked by this. He gives what's a sort of anxious, run-on sentence, and he reports about the Philistine invasion. He even admits here that God has departed from him, leaving him without revelation or direction. So he, he tells Samuel, I called on you to tell me what to do. There's no repentance here, right? There's no love for God. He wants guidance, but he doesn't want the guide. He wants comfort, perhaps, maybe military advice, yes. But contrition and returning to the Lord, no. It's part of the the great tragedy of this narrative as it comes to its conclusion. So Samuel responds with this speech, which leaves Saul desolate. There's virtually nothing new in what Samuel says here. Most of it's a simple reiteration of what he said back in chapter 15 after the Amalekite debacle where Saul refused to carry out holy war. And there is in this speech not a shred of pity or comfort. Death, we might say, has not mellowed Samuel. Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed and become your enemy? Right? He has done just what I told you he would do. He's torn the kingdom from you. He's given it to your neighbor. And then he names the neighbor, David. Though this is no surprise to Saul at this point. You did not obey the voice of the Lord, Samuel continues. 
with respect to the Amalekites. Thus, you're in this state. You didn't listen. You didn't hear. Now you must deal with the silence of God. It's a dreadful thing to not listen when God speaks because eventually he will stop speaking because God is not a chatterbox. He speaks. He's the eloquent God, but he doesn't chatter. So Samuel is saying, look, Saul, I told you that rebellion is as witchcraft. Rebellion is akin to divination, and now you've demonstrated the connection. That's one of the key things to take away from this text. Rebelling against God is playing with demonic fire. It is akin to divination. You started by not heeding the voice of the Lord. You end up by heeding the voice of a necromancer. And then there's a devastating conclusion. And this is new. It's new prophecy from the departed Samuel. Israel and you will lose the war. You'll be delivered into the hands of the Philistines. And then he gives him this spooky death sentence. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. You conjured me up. You conjured me up. God is conjuring you down, summoning, summoning you down. Think of Samuel's, the brackets of Samuel's career. His first prophecy as a young man was about the desolation and destruction of the house of Eli. And his last prophecy from beyond the grave is about the destruction of the house of Saul. Saul's reign, indeed his life, is over. And after a promising start, it is an abject failure. It does not matter how you start the Christian life. It matters how you finish it. It matters that we run the race with endurance. It matters that we repent and we get up and we continue on. Saul stopped doing this at some point. He gave up at some point. And now he has come to this horrific end. The third point then is the dinner. Verse 20. The text says, Saul fell full length, full length on the ground. Remember at the beginning of the Saul story, the narrator told us that he was tall in stature. Now, all of that height is in exhaustion and defeat leveled. Boom. Full length. On the ground. Terrified. His strength gone from having not eaten. He gets comfort and pity and kindness from the woman. From the medium. They have a little conversation and it's full of ironic wordplay about listening. Which is of course the cause of Saul's demise. He listens to the woman. He listens to the urging of his men. And he lets her prepare a meal for him. She cooks for him. It's a meal fit for a king. And for a prodigal son. In this case, a prodigal who has not yet returned and is not returning to the father's house, one who is still in the far country. She has a fattened calf, which she butchered. And notice the urgency. She butchered it at once. She baked some bread without yeast, the text says. And they ate, and on that same night, right, they're in a hurry, they got up and left. What this is, is a counterfeit Passover meal. This is Saul's last supper. He departs into the night like Judas. But he's not fleeing judgment. He has actually accepted the word from Samuel. He even goes into battle the next day with his sons. 
where according to Samuel's word, they all die. They all die. Let me make two applications in closing. I'll call them demons and darkness. So first, demons. And here I will state the obvious, and I will be blunt. If you're involved in anything like this, like tarot card reading, or any attempt to contact the dead, or to discern the future apart from God's word, you need to stop. Now, this stuff is in many cases pure fraud. That does not mean it's harmless. Right? The Apostle Paul can say this. He can say, idols are nothing, meaning they have no existence. But he still thinks worshiping them involves one in the realm of demons. Do not open yourself up to the realm of the demonic. And the place of safety, right, the place of protection, is not something you have to devise. You don't have to conjure it or summon it. It's in Christ's body, under the word, at the table. Right? We saw this in the call to worship. In the context of fleeing idolatry, a very relevant context for Saul. Right? Of seduction toward pagan ritual, Paul says you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part both in the Lord's table and the table of demons. The word and the sacraments... That is the place of safety and refuge. And by its very nature, the place of communion with the living Christ who calls us to flee, to flee the demonic powers. Secondly, then, darkness. I mean, Saul is a unique case, of course. And he has his own personal history that's not going to be identical to anyone else's. But many people experience what has been called in the Christian tradition a dark night of the soul. Right? Many feel the silence of God acutely. They feel forsaken. Any reading of the Psalms will show you this. Just read Psalm 88. It is unremitting, unrelentless in its darkness. There's not a single note of praise in it. Read Psalm 88 if you don't think prolonged, brutal, Darkness can engulf a believing soul. And our confession of faith recognizes this, right? It tells us that God's providence for holy and just ends can leave his children in darkness. It tells us that we can struggle long to attain assurance. We are not naive, beloved, about the the sense of absence which can grip a child of God. But this must be seen as designed to draw us to and not away from God, as perhaps counterintuitive as that is. This is designed to break, to purify, to deepen, not to destroy. Suffering, mental suffering, emotional suffering, physical suffering, it either hardens or it produces glory. Right? Suffering either breaks people and they become cynical and bitter and indifferent, or it breaks them open, it cracks them open, and they pour forth in charity, in their weakness and in their humility, they pour forth the love of God. 
Suffering either breaks you or breaks you open. We must not respond to the darkness as Saul. He made a lot of choices. You don't end up where Saul ends up without decades and decades of decisions. Isaiah says this, the prophet Isaiah says this, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? When the darkness is great and the sense of abandonment is great, people who you might not otherwise think are seduced and tempted to this sort of thing. Saul is exhibit A. Here's what Saul needed to hear from that same Isaiah before he was finally cast off. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous his thoughts. Let them return to the Lord. He will have mercy on them. And to our God he will freely pardon You know, after her death, Mother Teresa's memoirs or her diaries were published. And it sort of shocked the world to find out that she had gone through decades and decades of what was essentially a dark night of the soul in the midst of all that work in the slums of Calcutta. She had acute, vivid experiences of Jesus calling her to the work and then a deep sense of abandonment which gripped her soul the whole time. But she continued to turn to the Lord for mercy to seek him while he might be found. She did not turn to necromancers or spiritists. Saul had opportunities to turn and to turn, to seek and to turn. But eventually, beloved, the hour comes when one cannot repent. One cannot return. This is why the the writer to the book, to the Hebrew Christians in the book of Hebrews, tells us that we must be careful to pay even closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift from it. Drifting is the great threat to the Christian life because a ship that drifts off course eventually does not know where it is. It loses its bearing. It cannot get back on course. In our darkness, in our doubts, in our sense, perhaps that God is not with us, our perplexity, we need to be like the Apostle Peter, who when Jesus scandalized him, when he had no idea what Jesus was saying, said this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Here's the irony. The absence of God is designed to drive you to God, not away from God. To the God who knows the bottom of despair and desolation and darkness. To the one who said, In our flesh, in your flesh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the one who now raised promises. We heard this in the reading from the book of Hebrews, the New Testament lesson. To the one now raised who promises never to leave you or to forsake you. To Jesus Christ, our refuge and our hope. Amen.